Good afternoon. My name is Taeyong. I'm the cross-cultural pastor here at Epping. If you haven't met me, um, let's talk to God first. Gracious Lord, as we turn to your word for us, may the Spirit of God rest upon us. Help us to be steadfast in our hearing, in our speaking, in our believing, and in our living. In your name, Amen. Cricket Australia. We probably could say that. Although cricket is all around us, I'm not a fan of cricket. Actually, I'm a fan of baseball. And I feel a bit fed up with being excluded from the cricket chat when Matt turns on the live, live radio broadcast featuring the national cricket team playing the recent Ashes test in England, or when the post comments about cricket scores on Facebook. I wanted, to, I wanted to say something, but I couldn't. My understanding about cricket is limited. It is a bat and ball game. I don't understand why cricket players play in pajamas sometimes, and how it is that five-day games can finish in only two or three days. It is unclear to me why the national cricket captain is so popular and famous in Australia. So I googled about cricket and learned something that I could insert into conversations. The Australian, the problem of the Australian national cricket team is that the batting order collapses. Sometimes because the ball is swinging, sometimes because there is too much scoreboard pressure, but mostly just for no apparent reason. <laughs> and a lot of fault lies with the selectors not giving young players with the potential of fail goal while giving all the heroes too many chances to impress themselves. Everyone may be impressed at first, but it will soon be discovered that beneath the surface, I have no understanding of the sport of cricket whatsoever, <laughs> because they are just what Steve taught me. <laughs> it seems that something similar thing is going on with the disciples here. If you remember last week's preaching, we know that Mark gave enough evidence to prove that Jesus had both authority and power. His miracles, healings, power, and greatness led many people to wonder who Jesus was. People were wondering about how, who Jesus was, but they couldn't figure out that he was the Son of God or the Messiah. They could grasp that Jesus might be a prophet, whether the resurrected John the Baptist or Elijah. But Peter talked as though he had taken on board Jesus' identity as the Christ. That's where we left off last Sunday. But in, it turned out that Peter hadn't fully understood the identity of Jesus. When Jesus had shocked everyone by linking the Son of Man with suffering. 
And in this way, you may wonder what or who is the Son of Man. Let me give you an explanation of the Son of Man. The Son of Man is another title for Jesus. In Daniel's vision in the Old Testament, he was described as a qualified universal king who was read into the presence of God the Father to rule his kingdom. His dominion as an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. From Mark 8.31, Jesus gives his disciples explicit teaching about his impending suffering, death, and resurrection. In doing so, we can see that there is a pattern when Jesus predicts those things and when his disciples respond. Their misunderstanding of the true nature of the Christ, the kingdom of God, and the discipleship is revealed. And Jesus corrects them. So you get this pattern, suffering prediction, misunderstanding, correction. Again, suffering prediction, misunderstanding, correction, and again. What I want to help you see today is how the three suffering predictions of the chapters 8 to 10 reveal the suffering nature of the Christ, his kingdom, and his followers, and also how the prediction is related to the surprising future for the Jerusalem temple in chapter 11 to 13. Let's have a look at a chart on the screen. I know you like chart. Notice the place column on the left. It is helpful to see a map. Here it is. Sorry, it's not like Google Earth. Uh, here is a Galilee. The first eight chapters of Mark are showing Jesus' ministry in and around Galilee. Then Jesus started to head Jerusalem from Caesarea Philippi. So here, Caesarea Philippi, Galilee, and Jerusalem. This journey to Jerusalem was about 400 kilometers. During this journey, Jesus focuses his teaching on his suffering, death, and resurrection rather than on his healings or miracles. And he also gives an intensive course about discipleship, teaching how the followers of Jesus must follow his example. So as we read through from the last part of Mark 8 to 13, I want to look through the three predictions to show you the pattern. And then we will move back to Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem in chapters 11 to 13. Let's move on to the first prediction. Notice that Jesus says that he must die. Let's have a look at 8.31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and then he must be killed, and after three days, rise again. 
If the news of Jesus' impending death doesn't shock us as much as it should, that's because we already know how the story ends. But put yourself in Peter's sandals for a moment. His head is full of the traditional idea of the Christ, a king, ruler, and rescuer. When he tries to match this concept with suffering, rejection, and execution, it just doesn't seem to fit. The traditional idea of the Christ and his death just don't go together. It would have seemed crazy to Peter that Jesus, the one who showed his greatness through miraculous healing and power of nature, could himself die. That is not what should happen. However, Jesus' invitation to would-be disciples is frank. Have a look at A34. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There are two things we need to look at more closely. Firstly, the word deny is the same word used by Peter when he said he doesn't know Jesus on the night when Jesus is arrested. Peter said he wanted to follow Jesus wherever he goes. But he then, in contrast, subsequently denies his personal relationship with him. He disassociates himself completely from Jesus to serve their relationship. So a disciple's self-denial means to refuse to be guided by one's own self-interest and to surrender control of one's own life to serve humbly in the relationship with Jesus. Secondly, Jesus talks about the cross for the first time in Mark's Gospel. It is not his cross, but his disciples' cross. Take up your cross. We easily miss the first of this because take up your cross has entered the English language as an idiom for anything moderately unpleasant that has to be done. Maybe it's the same to Korean culture. For instance, putting out the beans, filing in your tax return, and the sacrifice of not eating chocolate for Lent. The original sense may be better captured as Jesus inviting us to put ourselves on death row. This is a call to join the march to his way to the cross, as John's Gospel shows that many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. In other words, Jesus tells them, don't turn back from him because he's going to die very soon. And he encourages them, if they lose their life for Jesus and his gospel now, they will save their life in future. Look at the screen, the diagram. That is a paradox. So how does this instruction of discipleship relate to us? We don't need to march his way to the cross. Jesus has done it already. What's his instruction then? For followers of Jesus Christ, the cross-shaped life 
is essential, but it is also impossible. We face the temptation to seek worldly security rather than risk our lives for Christ. We can't attain it by ourselves. And our failure to attain it will shut us out of the kingdom. Wonderfully, Jesus brings a double solution. As our substitute, he offers his life as a ransom for ours. But he also opens our spiritual eyes so that we might see the right way. The kingdom of God, which the disciples were expecting, was not coming by blocking out the Christ's cross, but by joining Jesus on his way to the cross. The disciples needed to change their thinking or expectation about themselves as well as about the Christ. The cross of Jesus is not only a method for our salvation, but also a way of life that disciples must bear if they want to be his followers. In his gospel, Mark tells us the punchline up front. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in chapter 1-1. And then he spends the rest of the gospel waiting for Jesus' followers to discover this truth. But what if the reality doesn't match people's expectations? Jesus gave the second prediction of his suffering after the disciples have witnessed his transfiguration. Although Peter, James, and John witnessed the glory of Jesus on a high mountain, it doesn't mean that God's surprising plan for his people has changed. Let's move on to the second prediction and have a look at 931. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. Jesus confirms again his suffering, death, and resurrection. Then straight after this second teaching, Mark shows that the disciples still misunderstand Jesus and his kingdom. What's their response? They argue about who is the greatest. So Jesus brings before them a little child who is regarded at the time as the very least, who is needy, who is socially invisible, easily ignored, and who can be hurt. And he teaches that greatness in the kingdom of God is measured by such humble servanthood. We might paraphrase, if you want to be the greatest, start changing some nappies. I'm not saying this because I changed a lot of nappies for my four children. At this level, the teaching on discipleship is bracketed by two references to the last being first. The idea of being last seems to be fleshed out in terms of serving others ahead of ourselves. 
we need to learn how God lengths things. God evaluates us differently from the way people do in our world. We tend to look at such things as family or cultural heritage, rank, wealth, and position. But God looks for self-giving service. Anyone who wants to be first in God's eyes must become the servant of all. This reverse is reminiscent of Jesus' early promise that whoever loses their life will save it. The diagram will be helpful. Let's move on to the third prediction. We have been given some more details. He tells them the destination and purpose of this journey, his trial process, and the four actions to mock, to spit, to flog, and to kill by the Gentiles will be done. Have a look at chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. He's heading up to Jerusalem. He will be killed in Jerusalem, the very city where his kingship was supposed to be acknowledged. He will be betrayed by the religious leaders who are representatives of his people. Jesus teaches them more details about his suffering, death, and resurrection, but still the disciples don't understand. What about the disciples' response? They keep getting it wrong. Jesus has patiently collected them, but then they get it wrong again. James and John want a high position in the kingdom of God, and the other ten disciples became indignant with them. They have in mind the things of man. It may be natural for simple human beings to have a desire to have a high rank or to control others. They selfishly want places of privilege in the kingdom. They, maybe like us, reflect a me-first mentality. But that shouldn't be so in the kingdom of God. Do you remember? The kingdom of God is all about self-denial. We need to be interested in being the last, not in being the first. Here, in a nutshell, is perhaps the most unexpected element of the kingdom of God and of Jesus. Greatness is measured not by being saved, but by, being, but by serving. This is beautifully summarized in chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here is the extraordinary example set by the Son of Man. He came not to be served, 
as he might have been entitled, but to serve. He is first because he put himself last, and that's what his followers have to do as well. As a practical point, greatness is measured by being inconvenienced so that others will then know God. And it is not just inconvenienced for the attractive, popular, high-profile people. Greatness involves being a slave of all. So are you? Who are you spending time listening to so as to help them be a follower of Christ? Who are you doing things for as to help them to follow Christ? Who are you going out of your way to help? Friends, sometimes we may think that the disciples are very dull to understand as they fail to understand the unexpected truth that Christ is a servant king. Jesus spoke about his suffering, death, and resurrection three times. How could they not understand? Is that what we think? What about us? I believe we may see our own lack of understanding is really a reflection of theirs. But don't forget, their stories haven't finished yet. Mark wants us to learn from their weaknesses, misunderstanding, mistakes, and failures. He wants us to gain a true understanding of Jesus' servanthood and also personally follow his cross. Let's now move on to the Jerusalem ministry. When Jesus finally enters Jerusalem in chapter 11, events escalate to flashpoint. The anointed king and ruler, the savior of the people of God, the redeemer of Israel arrives in Jerusalem, but the religious leaders reject him. They still challenge his authority. They haven't got a clue what he's on about. We will think more about this next, next week. And while he's there, we see another surprising prediction about the future of the Jerusalem temple, which is its imminent destruction. As you probably know, this would be surprising news to them because the temple was the center of every aspect of their life. This is a result of their unbelief, even when the time is fulfilled. Jesus rejects Israel, who rejects Jesus. He curses a fig tree to symbolize his curse on Israel, who is not ready to accept him, even though their religious system looked to be flourishing. He announces an upcoming judgment on their temple. And this prediction will be eventually fulfilled by the Roman army in AD 70. So my brothers and sisters in Christ, Mark is really making a point when he shows the pattern of the three predictions. 
you are following whom? What kind of Christ are you following? Are you following a kind of celebrity? They may give you some entertainment or fantasy. Are you following popular teachers who are liked by many people? They may give you some advice or wisdom for your life. Are you following prosperity teachers who promise that they will boost your bank account? They may do if you boost theirs first. None of them can save you from the result of our sinful nature. What about Jesus Christ? If you follow him who suffered, died, and resurrected for us, to save us, you will get life through his death and resurrection. Following Jesus is much, much better than the catalog of leaders that the world can promote. Faithfully following Jesus Christ is God's way and the source of life for his followers. If you already follow Jesus, why do you follow him? If you want to prosperity, you have gone in the wrong direction. If you only want to train your heart, that is also in the wrong direction. If you want to religious satisfaction, that is also in the wrong direction. If you remain in a journey in the wrong direction, you will be disappointed. Because being a follower of Jesus is pointing us to God's saving work for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Mark wants to get that truth into us. He wants us to ask this question to ourselves. How are you following Jesus? Denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus is not a one-off event. The truth we need to grapple with today is that following Jesus is our lifelong journey. There is a danger throughout our whole lives that wrong motivation and worldly values can control Jesus' followers. For instance, we may feel and have a mistaken sense of our own self-importance. We may want to be great so that others will serve us. We may want to control everything. Everyone may be too busy trying to direct others rather than trying to get the job done by serving others. That's why we need to be guided, be changed, and be transformed by the Holy Spirit, who is the power of God. Indeed, it is impossible for selfish human beings, but possible with God. God makes the impossible possible through his Son. And this is very different to following tweets or Facebook posts without any cost except just two seconds clicking the computer mouse while touching the screen. We are following Jesus Christ, our servant king, and it should shape how we follow him as his disciples. We need to follow the way he has chosen, 
not the way we would choose for ourselves. How are you following him? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the ultimate sacrifice your son paid, not only to cover the penalty for our sin, but also to reconcile us to you. Please help each of your people, your followers of Jesus Christ, faithfully follow Jesus, our servant king. Please keep watch over our lives as followers of Jesus. In your precious name.